0: Hello, my dear listeners, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek for our first episode of 2022. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the cinematic adventures of Spider-Man. Firstly, I just want to apologise for my voice today. Ever since New Year, I've been suffering with a, a bit of a cough and a cold. Um... So my voice might not sound the best um, for this episode. But I am uh, taking gaps so that hopefully you don't hear me hacking my lungs up. Um, I hope you all had a good Christmas and a good new year. Um, I was prompted to talk today about Spider-Man, mainly due to Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, So this episode will contain No Way Home spoilers, but I will clearly mark them out when... Spoilers for that particular film are going to happen. Um, Because I don't want anyone who hasn't seen the film for whatever reason. I know it's still not safe in a lot of places for many people to go to the cinema, etc. Um, I don't want anyone who hasn't seen that film to be spoiled unnecessarily. Because I do think it's a film that if you can see it without spoilers, you deserve to. Because there's some very good stuff that I know I would have been in. Well... I I say I would have been annoyed if it had been spoiled for me, but spoilers don't tend to bother me much anyway, and I did in fact look up the spoilers the day before I went to see it, so. But that's because I'm just a bit of an odd bod. So, uh, Spider-Man films. There have been eight Spider-Man films that I'm going to talk about today. Well, no, sorry. Nine films I'm going to be speaking about today, because I'm also including Spider-Verse um I'm I'm going to briefly touch on the Venom films but not go too in depth on them here I get the feeling I'm going to be talking about um Sony's uh movies later on when I discuss the MCU later this year um because I'm planning on doing an MCU update in June um no sorry July after Thor, Thor Love and Thunder. Um, and I get the feeling once we've seen what Morbius has to offer and possibly some more idea of where Sony's stuff is, what Sony's doing with its properties, we might have an idea of uh, what what really we can say about the Sony universe. Um, so I'm going to touch on Venom, but I'm not going to go deep dive into it at this point. I should add, I'm also not going to um, discuss the Avengers movies that Spider-Man is a part of, um, which would be Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. I have discussed those in my MCU retrospective, um, back in season one, uh, in the early half of last year, um, so there's no need to really cover those here. Um... And Spider-Man himself is not the central character. So while there are things you can discuss about how they handle the character, um, I'll probably fold those into any discussions that I make regarding Tom Holland's take on Peter Parker when I discuss his other films. Obviously, Spider-Man being one of Marvel's uh, biggest and most popular characters, um, they've tried to put him in films uh, pretty much since the... Since the late 60s, early 70s, um, with middling success, um, Marvel was kind of stumbled when it came to putting their, their characters in film, especially in comparison to their main rival DC comics. Um, DC, for example, have had numerous television serials or television episodes, uh, you know, most famously the the 1966 Batman series, um... Or the the George Reeves Superman serials in the, I believe it was the late forties, and the Fleischer cartoons as well, the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons in the forties as well, um, which have brought their characters to a to a wider audience, Um, and the closest Marvel got with Spider Man was a television series in nineteen seventy seven. Um, starring Nicholas Hammond as Peter Parker. Now, those several episodes of that show were edited and released as films in territories outside of America. Um, And there were actually three of them. Uh, The first one appearing in 1977, which means it actually predates the first Superman movie by almost a year. There was also, not long after this, the... um, the very famous, well, somewhat infamous in certain sections of the internet, Japanese spider man series, um, featuring um, Spider-Man controlling a giant robot, calling himself the Emissary from Hell, and fighting um, assorted alien monsters, which was a, a very bizarre take on the character, um, but did go on to inspire the Super Sentai franchise in Japan wasn't necessarily a bad um, version of the character, but it was not Peter Parker. It was not um, the Spider-Man that most people recognised, but still very interesting if you've ever managed to watch it. That also had some film releases, but mainly in its native Japan, um, where episodes of the TV series were edited, put forward. Um, But the actual... Efforts to to make an actual Spider Man movie um, sort of mainly started in the eighties, off of the back of um, the the relatively low box office performance of Superman three in nineteen eighty three. Um, comic book films became kind of a low priority, um, and that affected any efforts to get Spider Man rolling um 1985 uh Roger Corman had an option on it um but then that expired so then it went to Canon Films um Cannon Films hired uh, Toby Hooper from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh to work on a script which he created as some sort of horror film Stanley was apparently um very upset at this uh take on the character and uh sort of took it away from him um, they worked on a, a new sort of take, which was going to be, uh, directed by Joseph Zito, whose most famous film was the Chuck Norris film Invasion USA. Um, Zito's version, I think was the one that got the furthest along for a while, um, the plans included having Tom Cruise as Peter Parker, who at the time was obviously a relatively young actor. Uh, Bob Hoskins as Doctor Octopus, and Stanley himself even expressed a desire to play J Jonah Jameson. Um, there was discussions of um, actresses, including Lauren Bacall and Catherine Hepburn, as Aunt May, and uh, Peter Cushing as a sympathetic scientist character, who would have uh, been part of the, the script as well. However, canon, um, when they got hit by losses on their finances um, for Superman IV, The Quest for Peace, and The Masters of the Universe movie, both of which cost them a lot of money but did not make much money back, um, slashed the budget for the Spider-Man film to what would have been under $10 million at the time, um, which led Zito to walk away. And so for a while it looked like Spider-Man was kind of dead for a while. The licensing rights for Spider-Man, like with many other um, comic book characters of this era, um, like Iron Man, Captain America, the X-Men, battered around <laughs> several um, different uh, picture houses, ended up at MGM for a while, um, who did a, a, tr- a treatment um, for it, ended up at Columbia. Um, Most famously, uh, James Cameron worked on a script treatment for it. He had a plan to include Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Octopus, um, which would, you know, he was a frequent collaborator of uh, James Cameron and someone that the director knew quite well. So it could have been an interesting choice, um, but whether necessarily a great one, I don't know. Um, Seeing what happened with Schwarzenegger as Mr. Freeze... James Cameron's most famous uh, scriptment as it was called which is a 57 page um exploration of what he was going to do with Spider-Man um was submitted in was copyrighted in 1991 um would have used the Spider-Man origin story but used variations on the characters of Electro and Sandman as villains uh Electro would have been named Colton Strand and was a megalomaniacal parody of capitalism, um, especially corrupt capitalists. Um, Soundman, who was simply going to be named Boyd, was going to be mutated by an accident um, involving uh, a Philadelphia experiment-style transportation, and that would have had him. The story would have finished with a battle atop the World Trade Center and had Peter Parker revealing his identity to Mary Jane Watson. This treatment was also very heavy on profanity and had Spider-Man and Mary Jane having sex on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, I think we could probably safely say that it wouldn't have entered development without substantial changes, and if it did, it would have been... If it had not been changed, it would have been a very, very interesting take. However, by April 1992, uh, Corolco Pictures, who were the ones in charge of this treatment, uh, ceased any active production on Spider-Man due to uh, continued financial and legal problems. However, in doing so, that led to a substantial amount of litigation Um, between James Cameron, Corroco Pictures, 20th Century Fox were involved, MGM, uh, even um, Marvel were involved in litigation proceedings once they emerged from bankruptcy in 1998, after having merged with Toy Biz. Um, This then led the the continuing legal issues as well as uh, Marvel's own bankruptcy, led them to license the rights to Spider-Man to Columbia, a subsidiary of Sony Pictures Entertainment, um, despite any disputes by MGM. And it was under Columbia that the first Spider-Man movie would go into pre-production. Well, sorry, into production. They'd all gone into pre-production at various stages, but the first one would successfully make it into production. So after rights uh, disputes were ironed out between... um, Columbia and MGM, involving both Spider-Man and James Bond, weirdly enough, Um, Spider-Man went into production. Um, Sam Raimi was hired to direct, um, which caught a lot of the movie-making press off guard, as he's a very strange choice uh, as a director. Now, Sam Raimi, by any means, I don't think is a bad director but he's a very very stylistic director uh his most famous works in the mainstream had been obviously um the evil dead franchise um which he had helped originate um dark man um the quick and the dead and a simple plan um so by the time he was announced to be working on spider-man he'd obviously made his name for himself as a very stylistic, um, decidedly non-mainstream director, which made the prospect of a Spider-Man film under him very similar to perhaps the sort of thing that we maybe had seen in 1989 with Tim Burton's Batman, in that we would have a director with a very unique vision um, creating their own take on this comic book character. Now, Raimi's appointment as director was one of the things that then encouraged certain actors to sign on. Um, now, the big, th- the first big three roles that were cast were Willem Dafoe as the supervillain Norman Osborn at the Green Goblin, Tobin Maguire as Peter Parker's Spider-Man, and Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson. Now, again, um, none of these actors were explicitly what anyone would have expected for these roles you know toby Maguire's most famous films at this point were pleasant phil and the cider house rules um both very artistic um kind of art house films kirsten dunce was um most famous was a sort of child teen actress um who had been in interview with the vampire and jumanji um as well as providing uh oh, and Small Soldiers as well, which had uh, been a moderate success when it had released. So she was definitely uh one to she'd started to make a name for herself as an adult actress. Uh she'd been in Drop Dead Gorgeous, um, in nineteen ninety nine, so again, sort of the, the art house trend, the very stylistic films. And Willem Defoe as well was a very, very well known character actor. Um perhaps famous for things such as Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, Platoon, um, The English Patient, Rolls in American Psycho, The Boondock Saints. Um, Yeah, very interesting character actor with a lot of very unique and very interesting performances. The film rounds out its cast with a lot of Very amazing character actors, Uh, J.K. Simmons portraying J. Jonah Jameson, Um, James Franco who would obviously go on to have a a very successful career before being mired in controversy, Um, as uh, Harry Osborn and Rosemary Harrison Cliff Robertson as Aunt May and Uncle Ben, two very, very important roles which I think they both of them nailed um the the script remained very focused around the characters and i think it's a very very good film um now the original trailer did actually come out just before 9/11 or was leaked not long before 9/11 i can't remember exactly and featured the world trade center as a set piece um that then had to be removed um Due to the 9 11 um, terrorist attack. And I'm not sure if the. I haven't been able to find out whether the the scenes of the New Yorkers sort of coming to rally around Spider Man um, was something that was added, was already in the film before 9 11, or if it was something that was added afterwards. But I will say, having seen how things happened after 9 11, it was very definitely something that we could see and feel, um, you know, of, of people all coming together like that. Um, now, all the time it was in development, they mainly used the James Cameron scriptment as its um, sort of guiding principle. Um, any rewrites that were done were based on that scriptment. Uh, However, I think the only thing that actually re- clearly remains from it is the idea of having organic web shooters. Um, Sam Raimi said he didn't want to stretch the audiences. Um, you know, he didn't want to make it less believable to them by having Peter then build mechanical web shooters. Uh, he thought it just stretched the um, their disbelief enough to have them be to have them have organic web shooters. Um, Which, you know, makes sense. He's a spider. So, it's a sensible idea. I do think it takes away part of Peter Parker's genius from the comics, which was a a sentiment echoed by many, many others, including Stan Lee. Um, But it's not bad. Now, the film itself is very stylized. There is a lot of... Um very bold colour choices in a lot of the shot composition. Um a lot of the CGI work is very, very impressive. They end up creating something called the Spidey Cam, which was a camera they could suspend on wires between buildings in New York City and have it drop in an instant to like almost street level and swing forward. Um so that they could have footage of New York that they could then animate Spider-Man on. Which is mind-blowing, because nowadays they would just create all that in CGI. Um, So yeah, it's a phenomenal piece of work. Several actors who were unsuccessful in um, auditions, including Joseph Manginello and um, Elizabeth Banks, um, who obviously auditioned for the roles of Peter Parker and Mary Jane, um, do appear in the film as other characters. Uh, In those cases, they are uh, Flash Thompson... And Betty Brant, Bruce Campbell also gets a cameo as he does in pretty much every Sam Raimi film. Uh, in this, he plays a wrestling announcer who gives Spider-Man his name. The film, to me, has a lot of similarities in terms of its tone, not with the sort of the more modern era of comics that we have in our days, or the you know the sort of dark era that we had in the nineties and early two thousands. Instead, it feels very, very much like the sort of Silver Age, Bronze Age stories that we would have seen under um, Stanley, John Romita Jr., Gene Colan. Uh, people like that who would have worked on the Spider-Man titles, you know, in the 70s and maybe the early 80s. What I mean by that is that the, the film isn't grounded necessarily. It has elements of it that feel a bit Goofy. Um, but not necessarily in a bad way, in that it, it just feels very comic booky, very kind of pulp. Yeah, it's hard to explain without making it sound bad, because a lot of these words are what we use to kind of deride pulp fiction, but pulp fiction and has its own charm, and a lot of the early comic books were designed as pulp fiction. Um, you know, this is the reason why early comic books fetch such a high price on the second hand market is because they were designed to be pulped. They were designed as disposable fiction. And that's not a bad thing because they're definitely good, good stories. And as is this, the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. There's a lot of nice touches, nice character touches. Um, J.K. Simmons um, as J. Jonah Jameson, for example, um, protecting Peter Parker uh, when threatened by the Green Goblin, which is uh, a, a very, very Jonah thing to do. I will say I'm not a huge fan of Tobey Maguire's take on Peter Parker, especially watching it back with a more modern eye, some parts of these films have not aged very well. Um, most famously, the the sort of homophobic slur that he uses against uh, the wrestler Bonesaw McGraw. But other elements of just the way Peter Parker is handled, his uh, attraction to Mary Jane, and despite the two of them not really having anything in common or any real history linking to them beyond, like, A small friendship when they were kids and then just living next to each other for 10 years since. Uh, Some elements are a bit... yeah, It comes across a bit creepy in some ways. Um, Maguire's... You know, Peter Parker's obsession with Mary Jane and this. But... It's not a terrible film. Uh, In fact, it's a very, very good film. There's a reason it's so popular and has remained so popular... Over the last twenty years, two thousand and two, it came out, and it's because it's it's a stylistic, visually striking film with a good story, anchored by very very strong performances from very talented actors. Um, you know, despite any issues I have with Maguire's Peter Parker, I can't help but deny that he is a very very good actor for that character you know the parts of him that feel like the Peter Parker in the comics feel so much like Peter Parker and Spider-Man that I can't deny that he is Spider-Man is that if that makes sense special mention goes to Willem Dafoe especially um I think Willem Dafoe as a a character actor he's one of those you see him in an ensemble This, I think, for me, as well as many, many other people my age, was where we sort of started to notice just how good of an actor he was. He put so much of himself into this role. Um, For example, he insisted on wearing the stunt suit. So most of the scenes where you see the Green Goblin just in the stunt suit, that is Willem Dafoe wearing the suit, even while riding the glider. If he was allowed to do it, they let him do it because he wanted to do it for two reasons. Uh, Reason number one, he felt it would unify his performance of the character if he can embody the physicality of the role as well. But also he's gone on record as just saying it's fun and he enjoys doing it. Um, And I think that definitely helps um, because it does make the Green Goblin this incredibly menacing force even when we can't necessarily see his face a lot of the time because of the mask um he also has some some very good scenes like where Norman and the Goblin personas are talking to each other and he is just chewing the scenery in all of the best ways um and there's even little tidbits like the fact that he's wearing false crowns as Norman Osborn but as the Goblin isn't um Which again, yeah, a very nice touch to signify the Goblin persona as more bizarre. The core three of Maguire, Dunce and Franco are all very, very good in their roles. They all have a decent chemistry between them. I'm not as sold on Maguire and Dunce chemistry a lot of the time. Um, Some of the scenes of just the two of them together feel a bit forced or a bit strained. Uh, to me especially, um, but uh, Maguire and Franco especially have very great chemistry as uh, as best friends. Uh, Rosemary Harris' Aunt May is, is brilliant and comes up with some brilliant lines. J.K. Simmons just steals every scene he's in, again, chewing the scenery in the best ways. And uh, Cliff Robertson's Uncle Ben is you know, such an important role to get right with a a small bit of screen time. And I think because of the the power of the line, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, which which is often attributed to the very first appearance of Spider-Man in Amazing Fantasy 15. But again, I don't think it is verbatim how it is there in the film, Um, but it's just a very memorable line that works so well. Um, as I said, there's a very positive New York vibe, which fits with what we saw in the post-9-11 attitudes in the city. can feel a bit cheesy at times within the film itself, um, but it's not terrible. Um, the film can also be quite brutal at times. There's some very, very brutal fight scenes, especially the final fight scene between um, the Goblin and... Peter Parker, there there were some hits there that you can really feel. Um, and like I said, some bits have not aged well. Um, the humour, even beyond that, some of the things like Macy Gray's performance. It's like, I'm, I'm sure Macy Gray is lovely, um, but she did not have a huge successful career after the 2000s. Um, and speaking of cheesy music, you know, there's a. Chad Kroger and Josie Scott's Hero on the end credits, which was uh,
1: everywhere
0: the year that film came out. The thing is, the film went on to be this enormous comic success. And I think we had had successes with Blade and X-Men over the four years prior. But I think um, Spider-Man definitely is the one that sort of proved that there were life in comic book movies After the decline of the Batman series, I mean, Spider Man went on, I mean, it had 139 million budget and went on to score 825 million worldwide, Um, and 407 of that in North America. That's insane numbers. Um, You know, even nowadays, those would be very, very respectable numbers. Um, But for 2002, you forget about it. That was that was one of the biggest films ever. The sequel um, was made for a much bigger budget, Spider-Man 2, uh, $200 million. It actually made a bit less money at the box office, and I think it was ranked a bit less critically as well, which is bizarre to me, because I think most people will agree it's generally an improvement on the first. Um, one critic at the time called it a bit too self-important for its own good at times. Again, the second film has a, um, a very notable character actor as its uh, main villain, which is Alfred Molina. Um, Alfred Molina has, again, a very storied career, mainly as a, oh, that guy, um, type of character, where it's like you recognise him from different films, but he does a lot of character pieces, essentially. Um, and he played the villain Dr. Octopus in the second film. He's very, very good. Dr. Octopus is a a very good villain and a very, very sympathetic villain. Um, Green Goblin was sympathetic to a point, but you could sympathize with Norman, but hate the Goblin persona. Whereas with Otto, um, because of how the groundwork for the character is established very early on, with his arms being in control of him. You know, and him just trying to do this revolutionary science experiment. He's trying to create a fusion reaction. Which is something that is still being researched nowadays. Although not quite to the same extent it is in the film. Because a fusion reaction would be one of the most pivotal um, developments in clean energy production. He's, He's trying to do something good. Um... But we also lay down a uh, another villain arc for Harry Osborn, which on the whole is good. He's he's very motivated against Spider-Man. It does make him come off somewhat schizophrenic in some of his scenes with Peter. It's like, hey buddy, nice to see. You. Oh, by the way, you you mate, Spider-Man. I'm gonna kill him, and it's like it, it's a very bizarre tonal shift. Um, Like at Peter's birthday. And it's like... You you feel like it's straining the friendship between these two. But then their actual friendly chemistry comes in and completely overrides that. Because like I said, the two of them had very, very good chemistry together. The chemistry between Dunst and Maguire is perhaps... Slight. I want. Say, oh, I don't. I'm not sure if I would say it was slightly better, because most of the iconic things about their romance are still in the first film, like the upside down kiss in the rain, which was, you know, a, a very important moment. And I think Kirsten Dunst actually said that wasn't Tobey Maguire in the suit. Um, maybe that's one reason why it seems to have better chemistry than the rest of their scenes together. Um, in fact, I'm not a huge fan of most of Kirsten Dunst's arc throughout this movie, um, with her agreeing to marry someone else seemingly just to make Peter jealous because she has already worked out that Peter is Spider-Man, but for some reason can't confront him on it straight away, bizarrely. She also ends up kidnapped again, which, um, you know, the the whole reason Dunst's character of Mary Jane is kind of diminished from the sort of outgoing, vivacious Mary Jane that we were used to in the comics is because it was a deliberate effort on the part of Raimi and the other screenwriters to combine Gwen Stacy and Kirsten and Mary Jane Watson into one character to have the best bits of both. So obviously, Mary Jane in the comics is this very outgoing personality, whereas Gwen Stacy is a bit more, a bit more homely and a bit more, um, a bit more of the, um, the damsel in distress. So Mary Jane in the films comes across as both, and neither at the same time. Um. Which I think hurts the character, not necessarily Dunst's performance, because Dunst is turning in good work as the character. Um but yeah, it's it's not it's not a romantic arc I really am a fan of. Um so much of the care and attention to detail from the first film though is still present in the second one and it looks fantastic there's a bit more reliance on cgi than some of the um than some of the the more practical effects that we used in the first film especially in digital doubles which were kind of a thing everywhere in the early 2000s perhaps a few years before they should have been and it's one of those you can look at a lot of films in that time and some of them have digital doubles done very very well like some of the Lord of the Rings films. Um, and then some of them have digital doubles done very, very badly. Like some of the other Lord of the Rings films. But also Spider-Man and Daredevil and Blade Two and uh, Harry Potter as well. That was had some very, very bad CGI work in its early installments. And it's just because the technology wasn't quite there yet. Um, some of the digital doubles aren't terrible though, like there's the the digital double of Dr. Octopus at the very end shot of him in the film, where he falls into the the harbour, that's digital double and it works. But, for example, when he steals Mary Jane out of the cafe and then marches off on his tentacles, that one doesn't. However, despite any issues I have with this film, it is still phenomenal. It tackles some of the, the bigger arcs from the comics like the Spider-Man No More thing. Although the idea of Spider-Man spontaneously losing his powers due to feeling overwhelmed I think is a a bit of a bizarre choice. Um and it does make me lose some respect for the character how he can like leave people even though he knows he has the powers to intervene. Um ah, but but then when he does come back and when he does find Dr. Octopus and he has the the big action scene on the, the train, which is a phenomenal action set piece, um, which has gone down in Spider-Man Legend. Um, and which, uh, funnily enough, was not filmed in New York because of the New York tra- train system that they were using has actually been removed at that point. I think it's been put back now. Um, but yeah. That's a random little fact I remember reading at some point. Um, and the film is definitely good. And there's some some great... Again, all the, the characters that we l- knew from before are here with the amazing characterisation. J.K. Simmons, again, steals every scene he's in. Um, and the, the core plot threads... It, it really feels like... A middle chapter of a trilogy while at the same time telling its own story because there is all this up with things like Harry Osborne and his quest for revenge against Spider-Man. Um, you know, set up as well with the amazing um credits using the Alex Ross artwork. Um captivated by that that brilliant score. Like the 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 opening credits of the first Spider-Man film. Have aged badly. The second one it's a lot more forgivable because yes, you're getting all the credits and the score in the same way that you were in the first one, but you're also getting these um summary images featuring featuring this amazing Alex Ross artwork, um which helps make you feel like it's part of the movie, even though it isn't. It's brilliant. A very excellent choice. Danny Hoffman's score is actually fantastic for these two films. I'm not a huge fan of Danny Hoffman's um, work in the films. I think he's he's one who can take on certain familiar patterns very easily. Like a lot of his score work with Tim Burton feels very similar, for example. Um, And I don't think he's as varied as someone like Michael Giacchino or... Uh, John Williams or uh, or James Horner, but I think his his work in the first two Spider Man films is definitely among his best. Um, you know the opening the opening credits are a good example of sort of the overture um, that you you don't really get in films anymore because the opening credits for the first two Spider-Man films feature a selection of different scores that will appear within the movie um, in a roughly chronological appearance of when they'll appear in the movie, um, all telling parts of that story. Um, so, for example, when you listen to the opening credits of Spider-Man 2, you get Spider-Man's theme, then you get um, Dr. Octopus's theme, um, where he's developing this machine, then you get the the sort of the more evil Dr. Octopus theme, then you get the, the losing his powers theme um, and, and struggling with his powers, and then you get the no Spider-Man's back again, uh, and then you get the more, the, the final, you know, elements of the final piece of the final confrontation. And I think it's a great decision to include that at the start of the film. So, like I was saying, I may still have issues with Spider-Man 2, but I think it's definitely um, a classic for a reason. And it has definitely gone down as a classic. It's generally considered one of the best in the superhero genre, for very good reason, I think. Spider-Man 3, though. Oh, boy. Um, It didn't help that that one had a, a very troubled production. Um... Where Sam Rainey clearly wanted to do one thing and Sony, specifically executive producer Avi Arad, who has made a lot of controversial decisions regarding adaptation of characters, especially Spider Man, over the years. Um, Avi Arad has a, a background in toys. Um, so for him it was it was this action figure sells, so this character should be in the film. And he wanted to put Venom in the third Spider-Man movie. Sam Raimi had no interest in doing Venom at all. So as a result, Spider-Man 3 feels like it's constantly juggling its three villains. With Harry Osborn, Venom and Sandman, the villain that Sam Raimi actually wanted to use. Constantly juggling for screen time. Um, most especially, well, most egregiously, with characters sort of disappearing as villains for significant parts of the runtime, starting with Harry Osborn getting the, the tired trope of amnesia after an unsuccessful attack on Peter Parker. Uh, it's It's not great. The thing is, there's definitely good ideas in it, and parts of the film are very, very beautiful. Like the um, the amazing scene of Sandman piecing himself together again um, after his, his transformation. That is a beautiful scene, um, and something the visual effects team worked on quite a lot, and you can tell. It was like this is one of their... Like, I get the feeling almost that that they wanted to make that scene work to prove that they could do Sandman. Because that's how it feels. It feels almost like they had to make that scene work as, like, a pitch. Almost. There's other scenes that become bizarre as well. Like, um, you know, the love for Spider-Man in the city feels just bizarre. Like, I grew up reading Spider-Man comics in the the late 90s, which was not a great time for Spider-Man in general. Um, But one of the first storylines I remember reading was something called Spider-Hunt, where Norman Osborn had taken over the Daily Bugle and was framing Spider-Man and put a $5 million bounty on him. All of a sudden, every time he went out, Spider-Man had like random citizens of New York taking potshots at him. Meanwhile, in this film... Spider-Man's on like a giant jumbotron. And it's like, yes, I'm talking about a 90s comic. Whereas, like I said, these films have a stylistic tone very similar to the Silver Age. But even in the Silver Age, Spider-Man wasn't a beloved hero. You know, the Avengers were. Spider-Man was kind of distrusted. Now, that may be because the Avengers don't exist in this universe. You know, there was an attempt to bring in Hugh Jackman... In the very first film, they actually flew him out to New York for a cameo, but couldn't get his X-Men costume, which is a true story. Um, So we could have had connections between the the X-Men film and the first Spider-Man film. Um, There was also, supposedly, going to be a cameo for Punisher in the second Spider-Man film, one of the characters that um, Mary Jane runs past in her wedding dress at the end of the film. I will say one thing I do like about Spider Man 2 is its conclusion isn't on Spider Man, it's on Mary Jane reflecting on the decisions she's made. Did like that. It was a very nice stylistic choice. Um but yeah, one of the people that she's running past is supposedly the Punisher. Presumably it would have been Thomas Jane's Punisher. Um but I don't either he hadn't been cast or wasn't available yet. Um for whatever reason when they shot that scene. Um, so, yeah, we could have had a, a Marvel Cinematic Universe between all of these different properties years before we we got the actual MCU, which is an interesting idea. Um, but, yeah, so that that's one thing that feels bizarre to me. Another thing that feels bizarre is the introduction of Gwen Stacy. Uh, as I said earlier, Mary Jane is kind of a composite of Gwen and Mary Jane's characters. So they introduced Mary Jane in this. Uh, They introduced Gwen Stacy in this, and she feels very different from her mainstream comic version in that she seems more outgoing. She has a career as a model, which is something that Mary Jane's more known for in the comics. Um, She's a science whiz. Which, I mean, Gwen Stacy was kind of a scientific whiz in the comics, but not quite to this extent. Uh, She feels more like a character called Deborah Whitman, who was uh, more famous in Spider-Man the Animated Series. Um, And yeah, she's, she's introduced as Eddie Brock's lover. And the daughter of George Stacy, the police chief, who's played by James Cromwell, who's doing a very good job. Eddie Brock in this film is played by Topher Grace. Gwen uh, Stacy is played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Now, Bryce Dallas Howard is doing a decent job with what she's got. What she's got isn't much. And Bryce Dallas Howard has gone on to have a very successful career. Um you know most famous mainstream audiences as a director on the mandalorian and uh, the character of claire in the jurassic world franchise she's not terrible in this the character is terrible but her performance isn't she's doing a very very good job the character just feels redundant Um, she seems to have been introduced without any sort of end goal in mind except to have her come between MJ and Peter. But MJ and Peter have more than enough things coming in between them anyway in this film. So it just feels like too much, like extra stuff is just piling on when it doesn't need to be piled on. It's just piling on, piling on, piling on. But she also seems to be there to create dramatic tension between Topher Grace and Topher Grace's Eddie Brock and um, Peter Parker I'll be honest I'm like most people do not like Topher Grace in this role I do think he's doing a good job with the material he's being given I don't think he's, it's a fault of his I think that the role does not suit him Um, because Eddie Brock should be a much bigger character anyway. Like, physically bigger. Much physically bigger character. Um, But I I think I do appreciate sort of what they're going for. I just don't necessarily think it works. Um, It feels like a very Sam Raimi take on Venom. But then it creates a sort of clash in that you've got the Sam Raimi Silver Age stylings... ...on Venom... ...who is a character from the... ...you know, the late 80s, early 90s... ...very definitely the Dark Age of Comics... ...you know, Venom being one of the originators of the... ...you know, one of the exemplars of the Dark Age of Comics. Um, I I do think some aspects work though... ...I think the the alien suit works... um, ...in Transforming Beta... It does make Peter Parker insufferable um, in, throughout this film. Most of the scenes where he's wearing the suit, he is insufferable. Um, and I think, as I said, I'm not a huge fan of his take on the character. Um, because I'm not a huge a fan of this take on the character. I don't think it's Tony Maguire's fault. I don't necessarily think it's Sam Raimi's fault. I think there's something about how they chose to do this character that I do not like. I think a lot of it's writing um but Tom Maguire plays it excellently it's just that again like i said i do not like this character and the alien suit making him insufferable is you know feels like a natural progression of a personality that i already hated um and felt felt like it fit um it felt like you know i think if anyone like, Spider-Man in... Peter Parker in Spider-Man 3. That's how he feels to me most of the time anyway. Like, he becomes he becomes a user. He becomes ridiculously confident. But, like, uh, a very macho... Incel type of confident. You know, to the point that some women are looking at him like, Yeah, baby. And some women are looking like, ugh, you know. Which I think is interesting. It's not a a clear like, are we supposed to support him or not? And kind of thing. It's very interesting. Yeah. Some parts of it are an interesting choice, like the little emo fringe, but you know, there's definitely good parts of it. And I think, you know, the actors do a decent job with it. Sandman is brilliant in the scenes that he is actually in. His arc has some real sympathetic moments but um, most of his sympathetic conclusion actually comes towards the end of the film or in the deleted scenes that were reinstalled as part of the editor's cut. Um, So for example learning more about his daughter and why he's become a criminal. Um, It makes him feel very similar to Otto or in a way uh, from Spider-Man 2 but And yeah, it's the fact that most of it comes in the conclusion. Which is... uh, eh, That's the bit I'm not so keen on. Um, The final act fight as well also has some very, very stilted line delivery. Um, Some from Topher Grace. But most especially from the extras. Some of the extras who were just given lines to say... Are terrible. And it's like they they feel very forced cameos, but I'm not sure who any of them are. There's a lot of cameos throughout these movies anyway, like a lot of actors who would go on to uh, have more successful careers afterwards, like Octavia Spencer, John McHale, you know, as well as, um, as well as obviously family and friends of, of the main characters. And then Bruce Campbell's own cameos throughout the three films of which again, his, his cameo in this one is his most insufferable, Um, but kind of deliberately so, he still has a sort of charm to it. Um, I think in part due to Bruce Campbell's very, very good comic timing. Um, But yeah, despite all that, I don't think it's a bad film. There's a lot to like in Spider-Man 3. There's just a lot of muddled bits on the way. I think that the final act, especially that final action climax... It's pretty satisfying, all things said. It is, it is a pretty satisfying climax. Um, you know, having Harry and Peter come together to fight Venom and save Mary Jane because Mary Jane is the one thing they've got between them that they both care about. Um, I do think the the reveal from the butler maybe isn't as good which is why I'm quite glad the editor's cut removes it because it does become a bit of a plot hole on the whole though Remy Spider-Man's trilogy is very good Um, there's definitely some missteps in there um, but they are good films and they have a very deserved legacy as well as a, a life forever in memes, sometimes for very good reasons. A lot of the things that are memed are memed for a very good reason, because they're either deliberately funny or accidentally funny. Um, But I don't think you can underestimate the impact that these three films had on the superhero genre. And I think you know trying to imagine the modern state of comic book filmmaking Without the Raimi Spider-Man films. Is a bizarre prospect. Now the amazing Spider-Man duology. By uh, Mark Webb. And starring Andrew Garfield in the title role. Now. The development behind them was interesting but also somewhat tragic um Sam Raimi definitely had plans to make a fourth Spider-Man film um he did want to maybe take some time away um and then he took the time away came back was wanting to work on it he had a plan involving um John Malkovich as the vulture um Anne Hathaway as the black cat um would have focused more on um Peter Parker and Mary Jane and where their relationship was going from the then on. Potentially also would have given um, Bruce Campbell his best cameo yet as Mysterio. Um, but... Sony seemed to cape towing the line with him. Um... Be like, oh, we'll go into production in a bit. We'll go into production in a bit. Until eventually Sam Raimi just said, do you want me to make this movie or not? Where it became apparent that they didn't. And he walked away. And to hear Sam Raimi speak about it, it's it's quite sad because Spider-Man 4 to him sounds like a film that he wanted to make, very much wanted to make, and was prevented from making. Now in part, maybe it was to do with uh, Spider-Man 3's somewhat di- disappointing box office returns. You know, Spider-Man 3 had been one of the most expensive films ever made at that point. Um, you know, reportedly. Um, it had something like a $250 million budget budget. Um, plus marketing costs on top of that. And it had not made a lot of money. Plus, by this point, this was 2010, and Marvel's starting to get their own films off the ground with the MCU. So, they had a potential then to incorporate that as something that they wanted to do. And so, what follows is The Amazing Spider-Man. The Amazing Spider-Man is a reboot of Peter Parker that launched in 2012... Only 10 years after the first Spider-Man film. Not even like 10 years after the last Spider-Man film. 10 years after the first Spider-Man film. Retelling the origin. Covering a lot of the same beats. Featuring a very very similar main villain. uh, Main romantic lead. Featuring Uncle Ben. Aren't they? And it feels very very much like a film. That was written by committee. Um you know and across both of these two movies you can see a large amount of names in the the writing and screenplay and producer credits um suggesting that quite possibly yes it was a movie written by committee um which is a shame because even with that said i do think there is a lot to like in these two movies they're not terrible by any means um I know a lot of people were very, very turned off on them because of it meant the end of the Raimi Spider-Man universe, which a lot of people would come to love. But I think going back and watching these films again now, separate from that, separate from that, knowing knowing where they end up, um there's still a lot to like in them. And I'm gonna go on and explain some of some of my reasoning behind that. While also highlighting their problems. Because they do still have problems. Um, I mean for starters. Like I said. They, they The first film especially. Retreads the ground of the Spider-Man origin. Um, but also avoids any direct retellings. So it's Gwen Stacy rather than Mary Jane. It's. Um, you know. He doesn't become a wrestler. He becomes a vigilante. He. Um, you know the 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 person who kills Uncle Ben isn't a, a carjacker, or it's just someone that Uncle Ben runs into into the street. Even things like the the "with great power comes great responsibility" line gets turned into something else said by um said by Martin Sheen. He's like, um, uh, you know, if you, if your father always said if you had a if you had the ability to help someone, then it was your moral obligation to do so. That's what's at stake here. Responsibility. I mean, I'm paraphrasing badly. It was a, a clumsy, clumsy retelling. Um, but even then, I do think that some scenes in the film are, are still great. Um, you know, there was... Peter's reaction to his spider bite feels... has a lot of quite... Body horror moments, like where he's flashing around in his room and he's reacting very spider—you know, hard to say—very spider-like, very animal-like. You know, kind of twitching and nervous. Um, you know, the scene on the subway where he first uses powers and can't quite control them is entertaining. Uh, you know, it's and then seeing him test his powers at like the uh, while skateboarding and swinging on chains at the docks. You know, it's it's not even... It's not a bad scene. There's even some really subtle character stuff that I'm watching this back recently. I found myself quite liking. Like, Flash Thompson is obviously Peter's bully in this. And this is, this is still set in... This is now set in Midtown Science. Midtown High School of Science and Technology. So it's a science and technology-based school. But clearly it has a big sports team because Flash is, you know, a very much a jock type. And he beats Peter up earlier on when Peter tries to stop him from attacking someone else um, by angering him by calling him Eugene, which is Flash's real name. And that causes Flash to, to batter Peter until Gwen kind of steps in and embarrasses him. Uh, embarrasses Flash to, to get him to leave him alone. But then when. When Uncle Ben dies. After. And this is after Peter's humiliated Flash again. On the, the sports thing. Um, you know with the with the basketball. When Uncle Ben dies. Flash kind of reaches out to him. And. Peter kind of pins him up against the locker. Like as though he's going to attack him. And Flash makes a comment like. Yeah feels good doesn't it? Like a. Like a. As if he recognises. How much Peter's hurting. And I really like that. And it. It made me quite sad that nothing happened. Nothing further developed with this version of Flash Thompson. After the first film. Because later on in the film, he comes back and he he gives Peter like a big hug when he's happy to see that Peter's back at school. It's uh... Yeah, there's a very interesting character friendship there, which I think is kind of underrated and a lot of people don't remember from that film. But yeah, if if, if you can, watch Flash's scenes from Amazing Spider-Man. And it's just that there was a very clear effort there on the part of the writers or the actors or someone to have Flash kind of change and develop from the bully to the character that he becomes in the comics later on, where he does actually become one of Peter's friends and um, eventually becomes Venom. You know, and I kind of like that. That was an unexpected thing when I was watching it back um, recently. So obviously I just wanted to comment on that here. Because I think a lot of people might not have noticed that. Um, uh, Peter becomes a vigilante trying to hunt down the person who killed Uncle Ben. Um, and that's what leads him to gradually develop the Spider-Man persona. Like he starts wearing a mask because someone says, Oh, we've seen your face. you got to watch yourself. Um, you know, he develops the web shooters to increase his mobility he develops the 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 spandex suit so that he can, um, you know, so that he's more mobile and he can wear it under his street clothes. And the 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 suit in the first film is not great, but it does have a, a homemade look to it. Like they show him like screen printing a piece of spandex, and despite the fact it's a, you know, it does look like something a kid could have created. You can't say that about the Raimi Spider-Man suit. The Raimi Spider-Man suit is incredible. But it was not something a kid would have designed. You know. The amazing Spider-Man suit is. You know it's head to toe spandex and neoprene. And it looks like the sort of things that he would have been able to find online. Um, The scene with the car thief has some of the kind of the classic. Spider-Man humour, like the guy pulls a knife on him and Spider-Man's like, oh no, it's my weakness, small knives and it's like, you know, that did make me laugh um, and then the scene of him rescuing a kid on the bridge um, which is where he sort of takes on the role of Spider-Man, takes on the role of the hero and saves the kid, like, you know, encouraging the kid, like, put the mask on, it, it'll, it'll give you strength, you can do this that, to me, especially with it seemingly being inspired by um, George Stacy's speech at the dinner table when Peter was around Gwen's, saying how, um, you know, Spider-Man isn't a hero, he's a vigilante because he's he's hunt- hunting one particular type of person. You know, that scene on the bridge is what f- seems like the evolution into Spider-Man the hero r- rather than the vigilante, which I do quite like. Um I'm not, I am quite a fan of the fact that he never catches Uncle Ben's killer. I think that's a very, very bold choice. It makes me think of, um, I think it was post-crisis Batman, where Batman never catches um, the person who killed his parents. So obviously most iterations of the Batman story, um, the Waynes were killed by Joe Chill and joe chill is then captured and arrested um and that you know the the story of joe chill is one of the things that helps motivate him to become batman post crisis they used they had joe chill never get captured so they had the motivation to be the hero you know for bruce wayne to become the vigilante being that he's trying to find the Wayne's killer, but probably never will. And I like that take here for Spider-Man. And I like that he doesn't capture him at the end, you know, at any point in the film. Also, because one of the things in the Raimi film is that, you know, the the, 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 the burglar, the, the robber, the uh, Carradine, isn't it? The character... Uh, He ends up dead, and Spider-Man doesn't save him. He ends up dead kind of because of Peter, which is... (sighs) I don't like the idea of Spider-Man doing anything that could make him a killer. Now, regarding the films themselves, they've obviously got a much more direct inspiration from the Ultimate comics, Um, in the same way that Raimi's... Films are very much the the sort of Silver Age classic Spider Man. Um, the modern films seem to have taken on an approach like the Ultimate Spider Man comics. Now, for anyone who hasn't read those comics, Ultimate, the Ultimate comics line by Marvel, was an attempt in the early two thousands to sort of make the to reinvent those stories for a modern age. Uh, reinvent a lot of the classic characters classic concepts for a modern age without the, the decades worth of baggage that they had accrued and Ultimate Spider-Man was very successful, it was the most successful one of that line, uh, it was written by Brian Michael Bendis and was very very popular um in that though it explicitly tied the origin of Spider-Man's powers to Oscorp um And tied the experiments at Oscorp into the Super Soldier Serum. um, Which is obviously used to explain a lot of superpowers. Such as the Hulk as well. um, Which the MCU had recently just done as well. um, In their Incredible Hulk film. So. I think the decision to use the Ultimate Comics was uh, a smart one. But. And it, it does create a sort of a more of a mythology of for this world. But it also raises questions like, you know, why is Oscorp involved in so many experiments with uh, trans-speciesism? Um, you know, beyond the fact that it can create a lot of supervillains and give Spider-Man his powers. Um, Lizard comes in. Lizard was a villain who was uh, kind of teased by Kirk Connor's role, uh, played by Dylan Baker in Spider Man 2 and Spider Man 3. He's somewhat sympathetic, um, and Risa fans put a lot of work into the behind the scenes. Like, he did a lot of onset motion capture as the Lizard, wearing like a, a Lizard mask, um, which was very bizarre. To watch, um, but very interesting. Although the character does like almost a complete change, um, after his first transformation and goes from being a, a sympathetic, uh, friend of Peter Parker to someone who could not seem any more villainous, just delivering normal dialogue. It's, it's very bizarre, uh. And yeah, it's a it's a weird choice. The film is also a lot darker in, in tone, um, as well as its visual style. Like a lot of the, the visuals are very, very dark, somewhat muddy. Um the score is also not nowhere near as memorable as the Danny Elfman scores. Or Christopher Young's score for Spider Man 3. It's um again, feels like it's done by committee feels like it's hitting the beats of a score that you would expect um you know it's rising action so we'll have like rising crescendo and strings and you know this is all heroic so lots of strings lots of brass and it's yeah it's, it seems very very tropish. Uh, I think is. um some way to do it. One um aspect where the film does improve itself on its previous ones is the chemistry between the two leads, uh, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, who plays Gwen Stacy. Um, are obviously the main romantic interest in this film. Um, they have tremendous chemistry. Um, and they did end up dating after the first film. I don't think they were dating at the time. Now. Kirsten Dunst and Tony Maguire also dated, but I don't think it improved their chemistry any. Um The only problem is that the in the first film especially, there's a, a very much an improvisational tone to a lot of their scenes together. Like you can tell that they're being they're improvising dialogue. And they're not necessarily great at it. Um so some of the scenes feel like a, a bit grating, like they're taking too long and a bit a bit cringy, a bit uncomfortable um but the actual chemistry between them is brilliant when anything is scripted um like her reaction to Peter webbing her on the roof is fantastic her the chemistry between them when he's talking about stopping the lizard is fantastic um. And I should add Amazing Spider-Man 1 also probably features one of my favourite Stan Lee cameos, where he is just um, tidying the library up while Lizard and Spider-Man trash the shelves behind him. Um, It's one of the more drawn-out ones, one of the more obvious ones. But, yeah, I really like that one. Um... It's not my favourite Stanley cameo ever. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what is my favourite Stanley cameo ever at this point. Um but it's very, very good. Um So the first film is kind of muddled. It leaves it does lay a lot of groundwork to to build on. And you know, it introduces some uh An additional wrinkle with Peter's parents who were kind of skimmed over in the Raimi trilogy. uh, Being established characters in this one. And uh, Richard Parker's research being quite important um, for Oscorp. And, you know, the ransacking of their home being one reason why he he and his mother left. Uh, He and his mother. He and his wife, Peter's mother, left. Um... But on the whole, the first film does just feel like, for all the bright spots in it, it is held back by the fact that it feels unnecessary. Or it feels written by committee to the point of feeling contrived. There are definitely some good bits. I think Dennis Leary especially gives a very good performance as George Stacy. Um... You know, and he's he's not an actor I'm particularly fond of Dennis Leary, but um or a comedian I'm especially fond of to be honest, but um, but no he he does a solid performance as uh, George Stacy, especially in towards the final scenes of the film. So yeah, there's 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 a lot of there's a lot to like I think, um, despite the. I think there's a gem of a very good film in there. It just needed maybe a, a tighter edit. Um, and some of the fluff taken out. Um, and if that's the case for the first one. That's definitely the case for the second one. The second one is. Very 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 muddled. I should say Andrew Garfield once described this script. For Amazing Spider-Man 2. As one of the best scripts he'd ever read. However that was before the film lost a lot of major scenes and you know Andrew Garfield said that the script that he read would have required a three and a half hour movie or or at least a three hour film but once parts started to get cut away other bits then had to be cut away as well because they no longer made sense. And we know that there was a lot that was cut out of this movie. Like, there are scenes in the trailers. There's about 40 minutes of this film in trailers. And I think about 10 minutes of that aren't actually in the final film. Plus, there was a whole character cut out. Shailene Woodley was due to appear as Mary Jane. She's cut out completely. Um, So, I think it suffers for that because the whole story then becomes muddled because scenes now have to serve a different purpose, reshoots have to be done to add in a bit of exposition or to tighten something. But even then, there are still so much that's left in that is questionable inclusions like Dr. Kafka or the two planes that are about to collide in the air. And yeah, it's it's so hard to explain why they chose some of these things. Um Regarding the main plot of the film Dane De as Harry Osborne, he's not terrible. Um I think a lot of his problems are bad direction. Um uh, he was clearly told to, to go hard With the performance. And it it leaves him coming across very manic at times. Um, He does have some very, very good chemistry. With uh, the two main characters he shares scenes with though. Which is... um, Is it Felicity Jones as Felicia Hardy? And uh, Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker. He has very good chemistry with both of them. Like... The opening scenes with him and Peter... Like, I can believe that they are... Childhood friends reunited. Because they, they feel like that. Which is good. Um, Electro. Jamie Foxx's Electro was a very... It was a good idea to include Electro. And some parts of the character i absolutely love i love his dubstep soundtrack i love the 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 vocals on that soundtrack being like a kind of his inner voice mocking him um absolutely love that like the, the, the track my enemy that plays during the the battle scene in times square phenomenal track um and he he's again a very tragic kind of sympathetic villain like the battle in times square is phenomenal. And part of that is because it's the fifth Spider-Man film. And not the second Spider-Man film. So it's got all this budget from being the fifth film in the franchise. You know all this extra budget that Sony was able to chuck at it. Um, and it does a fantastic job. Uh, as a scene. And you can really sympathise with Electro. The downside maybe is um, his sort of origins is kind of... He kind of does the same character arc as Electro as Jim Carrey's Whittler in Batman Forever. And not for the last time because that would also be used later on for um, Kirsten Wigg's um, Cheetah in Wonder Woman 84. So they use that story arc again. Um, The idea of this dorky, nerdy, awkward, but hardworking member who's underappreciated and taken advantage of gaining powers or abilities and then being able to to get their revenge. Although Electro's revenge isn't quite the same as... uh, the more explicit revenge that Riddler and Cheetah get um which is slightly better like we don't see him beat his boss or anything um and I think of all the villains in these films Electro is definitely the standout um helped by the action scenes the score um the parts of Jamie Foxx's performance that, that do work um You know, the the like I said, his his dubstep score especially stands out against the the score for this film. I mean, the score for this film is better than the first one as well. You know, the first film score was done by James Horner, and it's not terrible, but it's not James Horner's best work. The score for this one is done by uh, Hans Zimmer, who is a, a much better. Uh, composer in general I think but then he's also backed up by a group called The Magnificent Six uh, which includes uh, Pharrell Williams, Mike Einziger um, Junkie XL, Johnny Marr Andrew uh, Kwasinski and Steve Mazzaro and it's like they're also all good composers and all good musicians so you can see why the score for this film is better um There's elements about this film that I also really like. Like, I like a lot of the stuff with Gwen. Um, I like her ad lib where she calls out Peter. Apparently, that was a genuine mistake. That's the reason why Emma Stone clasps her mouth so hard. You know, she was meant to shout Spider Man, and she shouted Peter. Um, and yeah, the director liked it, so I kept it in. Um, I like them committing to the decision to kill Gwen Stacy off. Um, you know, pre Spider-Verse, which was, I think the Spider-Verse crossover with the issue Spider-Gwen came out the same year as this film 2014. So that was what Gwen was most known for was dying and them deciding to commit to it. I think is good. Um, it does mean that it's another Spider-Man film that ends with a funeral. There's like four of these films that end in a funeral. Um, the only one that doesn't is Spider-Man Two, um, and they do a good job of building up Gwen before that she, before she gets killed off, like she's not killed off. Have her. her, her I, I've criticised fridging in this podcast before. And I will continue to. But. Killing Gwen off in this film. Doesn't feel like it's being done. To motivate Peter. More than it's being done to. To demoralize him. You know it's a tragedy. In the same way that. Death can be in real life. And it doesn't feel. It feels more earned. Than it does in the. um, In the original comic books. In the original comic books, Gwen Stacy's death feels sudden and out of nowhere. And she's not quite been built up as much. She is in this. You know, in this, they they've have it look like she's going to go to Europe to study. Which is something that Gwen also did in the comics. And you think that might be the ending of her character. Not that she's going to die. And, you know, her valedictorian speech is in there. Which is amazing as well. And is used over the final scenes in the film Um, I also think the final scene, the battle with the Rhino, worked quite well as a conclusion for this Um, I mean it became unexpectedly the conclusion for this entire franchise like the idea that, you know, they had huge plans, they were going to do a Sinister Six film, they were going to do a Venom film they were going to do Amazing Spider-Man 3, they were going to do Silver and black. Whatever that was going to be. They were going to do film on jackpot. Um, All built off of this one. And they sort of set the groundwork for that. With Rhino. But then you have. The focus becomes not on Rhino. But on the fact that Spider-Man has come back. After. Having disappeared for months. After having lost Gwen. Spider-Man comes back. saves the day and that's good that's a good ending for this i think um it is kind of curious how the plans for this universe would have gone um especially if they had been able to merge with the marvel universe as they planned um i mean there's definitely elements that feel like the mcu like the the Oscorp computer systems that they're using in the first film feel very reminiscent of um, Iron Man's Jarvis technology. Um, And there were even plans to incorporate um, Oscorp Tower into the skyline of uh, Avengers, Um, but the CGI model... For either the CGI model for Oscorp wasn't ready by the time they finalised CGI in Avengers or 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 something, there was something to do with where Spider-Man was later and so they couldn't finalise the CGI for Oscorp Tower to be in the Battle of New York but it would have been a nice easter egg a nice touch, um, especially because You know, the Sony hack later revealed that Kevin Feige. Was fully expecting to cross over with this version of Spider-Man. Like he actually gave them some notes on Amazing Spider-Man 2. And I think his notes, if Sony had followed any of them. Would have improved the film. But Sony didn't. Uh, And again, I think a large part of the problem with these two films isn't necessarily that they're bad, but it's that there's a lot going on and the bits that don't work overshadow the bits that do. And I think if they could have been trimmed back um, and focused on what did work, I think both of these films would have been a lot better received. Um... As it is, Amazing Spider-Man 3, the, the, the plans never materialized. Um, part of that was um, Amazing Spider-Man 2 really underperformed. It had something like a $250 million budget, $190 million marketing budget estimated. And its worldwide gross was, was only $709 million. Only 202 million of which came within, from within North America. And because of how American films work, the, the US, the domestic gross, as they call it, is worth more than the worldwide gross. Like, they get more percent percentage of the dollar or something. I'm not sure of the logistics. Um, and it basically meant that Amazing Spider-Man 2 was not quite a flop, but not successful. Um, part of it was you know just the, the very clustered year it it, it released in it re- released in a very clustered summer window and part of it you know was that it just wasn't critically successful you know there's a lot going on and not all of it works like for example the the extended plots with um Richard and May- Mary Parker which features a an extended opening where they die on a plane and then uh, a hidden subway train that comes up out of the ground, which is so bizarre and feels so out of place. So Sony pivoted their plans. They were going to do Sinister Six next. Then they changed their mind. They were going to do Amazing Spider-Man 3 and give it like a, a third chance. And I think maybe they would have taken some more of Kevin's uh, Kevin Feige's notes on board. Um, but then the press event where they were due to announce it, um, Andrew Garfield had to call in sick um, at short notice because he'd, he'd come ill. And the, the I think a day or two later, he was fired by the head of Sony, which makes the whole Amazing Spider-Man experiment kind of sad. It's like, what was it all for if it could be ended like that? But that did lead Spider-Man into the MCU. Now, after the failure of the Amazing Spider-Man universe that Sony was building, it was made apparent to the public in 2015 that Sony and Marvel had come to a sort of shared ownership agreement with the character of Spider-Man. Essentially, Spider-Man would appear in Avengers properties within the MCU, um, but also in his own movies under Sony, but Marvel Studios would be responsible for crafting and creating those movies. So this would be very much a Spider-Man within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, I have obviously spoken before um, about Spider-Man in the MCU in a previous podcast episode um, back when I reviewed how the the Marvel Cinematic Universe changed Hollywood, um, where I discussed sort of my my thoughts on the different movies. Um, I just have some things to say here though, mainly in terms of how these Spider-Man movies relate to what came previously. Because they do have a lot of similarities to what came previously, but also a lot of differences. As I said, the main attraction from them is having um, the Spider Man character interact with the world that was already established within the MCU and potentially with the Avengers characters themselves. Um, I think there's a, a part of the licensing stipulations is that two Marvel characters, like MCU characters, appear um within each of the Spider-Man movies so the first one features um Captain America and in like a small cameo and uh, Iron Man as a, in a, a more substantial supporting role um, as well as also featuring Happy Hogan um who gradually evolves into a Spider-Man recurring character uh and a brief appearance from Pepper Potts and then the second one, Far From Home, features um, Nick Fury and um, Maria Hill, although in the closing credits it's revealed that the Nick Fury and Maria Hill that we've been following throughout this movie are actually Talos and his wife from the scroll characters from Captain Marvel, which is a, a nice interesting little twist. I believe part of the licensing and stipulation also means that most of the characters created for the the Spider-Man films cannot appear within the wider MCU. I think the only one who really has a major appearance um, was the character of Mr. Harrington, who has a cameo appearance in Incredible Hulk and was later retconned to actually be the same character. Um, Obviously, when Incredible Hulk was made, they didn't know the Spider-Man films were going to happen, so it was just a case of they hired the same actor and then went, oh yeah, that's the same character. Uh, That's him back when he was in uni. Um, And beyond that, I think the only other one who does appear with any significant role is uh, the character of Ned Leeds, who has a a brief cameo in Avengers Infinity War. Oh, and, of course, Aunt May in Captain America Civil War. Oh, Ned also has a cameo in the end of Endgame. I should have mentioned that. Um, So the Spider-Man films are still kind of their own beast within the MCU. Um, I think they managed to keep to the core of how Peter feels in the comics. They've definitely, they've, they've definitely tried to make Peter and his cast good, well-rounded characters, not just a box ticking exercise so that they can have Spider-Man within the MCU. They are very definite characters. Um, Like I said, Peter feels like how he is in the comics. He's very selfless. He's very brave. He doesn't rise to bullies, like, for example, Flash Thompson's taunts. In fact, if you watch the films, he barely says anything to Flash. Like, and he he hardly ever responds to any of Flash's uh, taunts towards him. Most of the time, he just flat out ignores him. Which I think is a very nice touch. Um... Some parts of the more familiar Spider-Man narrative have been completely avoided. Um, For example, we don't see Spider-Man's origin in any of these movies. We don't see his parents, we don't see Uncle Ben. um, All things that have been touched on and done in previous films. Now, sometimes that might be to the film's detriment. I know a lot of people on the internet have complained about the lack of Uncle Ben. Um, Personally, I have a theory about it. And that theory mainly seems to be on how Spider-Man is structured within the MCU. As opposed to how Spider-Man is in the original comics. Um, in the original Marvel comics, Spider-Man was one of the first heroes to emerge. And obviously the, the interconnectedness of the Marvel characters came later. You know, Spider-Man appeared in his own title... The the Iron Man appeared in his, Doctor Strange appeared in his, the Fantastic Four appeared in theirs, and so on and so forth. It wasn't until um, some of the later issues of Fantastic Four and until the appearance of the uh, Avengers, which would have been a year later, um, that they really started to embrace the sort of connected universe method. Um, So obviously in the Marvel comics, Spider-Man was one of the first heroes to really appear. I think the only heroes that predate him in the Marvel universe are the Fantastic Four, I think possibly Thor and the Hulk. Uh, and I think Spider-Man and the Hulk actually appear in the same month or very very close. Um Henry Pym appears in um the man who the man in the ant hill story, but that's written more as a horror comic. He's not really given the Ant-Man identity yet. Um so yes, the 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 whole guiding principle of Uncle Ben is part of Peter's superhero origin. In the MCU, that's flipped on its head. Um, the MCU does have a very clear and established timeline that mainly follows our, our real world. So when we first meet Spider-Man in Captain America Civil War, which is in 2016, he says he's had his powers for about a year. Um... I w it's implied to be a year, so he would have got given his powers in twenty fifteen. By the time twenty fifteen happens in the MCU, the Avengers saved New York three years before that. Um, you know they've they've fought in Sokovia in twenty fifteen, so we'd had two Avengers movies plus plus the rest of Phase 1 and Phase 2, um, where we established, you know, the Fall of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, you know, the Convergence in Thor The Dark World. So, we could quite reasonably establish that perhaps Uncle Ben, or and maybe even Richard and Mary Parker, die in the Battle of New York. Um, and that, And, you know, Peter seeing the Avengers, you know, or trying to save people. Or, you know, maybe Uncle Ben tried to save someone and died doing it. You know, we don't need to necessarily see it to understand that it happened. And I don't think... I don't think Peter necessarily has to be responsible for Uncle Ben's death. Maybe he still blames himself for it, but he doesn't necessarily have to be responsible because there's no... The world that this Spider-Man exists in is very different. There is no real need for the story of the burglar um, from the classic comics. So that's my theory as to why maybe Uncle Ben hasn't been around. Um, They are going to do a Spider-Man series uh, as part of the MCU, an animated one called Spider-Man Freshman Year, um, which will shed some light onto this, presumably. Um, So I'd be interested to see if Uncle Ben does appear in that, um, and perhaps proves me wrong. Um, But, I mean, we've seen with um, Marvel's Hawkeye show, just how impactful the Battle of New York can be on certain people you know Peter would have been around the same age if not slightly younger than Kate Bishop and we saw how impactful the Battle of New York was to her in the Hawkeye series so so I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Uncle Ben maybe died during that or even they retconned it So that the kid in the Iron Man mask at the Stark Expo in Iron Man 2 is Peter Parker. What if Uncle Ben took him to that? What if Uncle Ben died there? You know, we don't know. Um, And there's there's plenty of possibilities. The characters, the supporting characters in the world, obviously we have Aunt May, as expected. Um, I think Marissa Tomei does a very, very good job as Aunt May. Um kind of a minimal role in the first two movies, um, but she does get a bit more to do in uh, No Way Home, which I'll discuss later on. Um, Ned Leeds, played by Jacob Batalon, and MJ, Michelle Jones, played by um, Zendaya, are brilliant. Um, I think they have very, very good chemistry with Tom Holland's Peter Parker. Um, especially Jacob Battle and the two of them seem like really good friends um, in real life as well as um, in the films. So obviously that chemistry is there. Like their their handshake that they do, and the two of them can just sort of they they the two of them know it by rote. They can do it without even focusing on it. It's very very good, and there's a nice little touch between the two characters that I I really like. I will say the role of Ned, um, you know, Ned is a character in the comics, um, but he's not as close to Peter in the comics as he is in the films. I think in part what they've done is they've combined him with the character of, uh, Genki Lee from, um, the Miles Morales comics. Uh, Genki is, um, Miles Morales' best friend and roommate at the um, the Brooklyn school where he's studying. Um, and he obviously becomes aware that he's Spider-Man helps cover for him, helps him plan and things like that, um, which is sort of the role that Ned takes on in this, uh, which I do like. Um, I think it also serves a double purpose in the film, in that it allows Peter to have someone to sound off against. Um, obviously in the comics, they do this with like, Caption boxes, thought balloons, things like that. We always have an insight into what Peter is thinking. In films, that's a lot harder to do. And, um, you know, some of the previous films have had it with um, Peter either just being quiet or perhaps talking out loud to himself. What they've done in this one is they've had, they've they've introduced characters for him to bounce off of. Ned is obviously the most uh, popular one, but also... The AI running his suit, Karen, in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, serves a similar sort of role. Um, You know, it's a a sounding board for Peter to talk to, uh, which I think is great. Um, The idea of both of the villains for these two films, for Homecoming and Far From Home, being influenced by Tony Stark was another controversial point. To me, though, it makes sense. It's a sign of how influential Stark is to the MCU, like, in its very DNA. And in comparison to Oscorp in the previous Spider-Man franchises, um, you know, even forgetting the, um, the the basement of superpowers that appears at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2... Um, Oscorp is responsible for the creation of multiple supervillains across all five of the previous films. Um obviously Norman Osborn ran Oscorp. Um the Oscorp provided the material for um Otto's the material and the funding for Otto's experiment which then led Harry to um secretly finance Um, Otto's second experiment in Spider-Man 2. I don't think there's a connection to Sandman, but obviously there's the connection to uh, Harry. So that's three out of five villains in the Raimi films that have a connection to Oscorp. And then the the more influential Oscorp that exists in the Amazing Spider-Man films is linked to Dr. Connors becoming the Lizard, Peter getting his own powers. And then obviously what happens to Harry and Electro as well. So then there's four characters there who are linked to Oscorp. So I think the idea of Stark being the MCU's version of Oscorp isn't necessarily a bad idea. And having these these villains be influenced by Stark, you know, that that also tracks with start creating a lot of his own problems throughout the MCU. Um, you know, and in this, not just creating his own problems, but creating problems for other people, which he did with Ultron as well. So, yeah, it it makes sense to me. Um, I have seen people decry it as basically turning Spider-Man into Iron Kid or Iron Man Jr., which I don't think is fair. Um. Yes, perhaps he gets a bit too much technology from uh, Iron Man with his, uh, his Iron Spider suit. But I think Far From Home does a pretty good job of having him emerge from Tony's shell as a result of that. And yes, he creates his own suit with the help of Happy and a Stark fabricator. But he creates what he needs to be Spider-Man, not what Tony thought he needed to be Spider-Man. Um, and then he's able to use that in the conclusion of Far From Home by relying on his own powers, by relying on his Spider-Sense. In what is a very, very, very visual, visually stunning action sequence, the the, the Spider-Sense scene. Can I just say, that is a very good shot scene. So is the 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 Mysterio illusion scene. I, I really like that one too. Um, the homemade costume is probably the most believable one yet. Like his his very first Spider Man costume. I like the idea of the having to narrow the the eye pieces um, to help him focus. I think that's a great touch um, as a way of explaining you know, one of those comic book tropes, which is that the, the the eyes on his suit in the comics do change to give us an indication of Peter's expressions. Um and we can do some element of that when in the films now because of these automatic irises, which I thought was quite again a nice touch and a way of explaining some of the more comic booky elements. Um I do think both films, despite the extra cast members um and quite large cast, especially Far From Home. There's a lot of moving parts to Far From Home. Like it's also serving as an epilogue to the Infinity Saga as well, with the sort of the tributes to Tony. But it does a very good job at keeping the focus on Peter and Peter's problems, which is one thing that I was always encouraged for, um looking forward to No Way Home. I know a lot of people were complaining that No Way Home would be a bit clustered, especially if all the rumors did turn out to be true. And then of course we found out that there were actually like five villains in it. And I'm like, well, yeah, but these films have always done a very, very good job at keeping Peter in the frame, keeping keeping Peter as the main focus. And I think part of that is the writing, part of that is the direction. Um, by John Watts, who has done a very, very good job. Part of that is just the performance of the characters. Um, So I was always encouraged by this. I think the villains are very, very good as well. Um, Michael Keaton's Vulture has some tremendous scenes um, as both the doting dad and the villainous Vulture. um, Like the reveal of him being Liz Allen's father. Is great, and he comes across as completely different to how we've seen him in the movie at that point. And obviously, Peter already knows who he is. So seeing that reveal and seeing Peter put on the back foot, and him just being a very good, very doting father and husband, you know, he just seems he brings that that Michael Keaton charm that. You know, the charm that Michael Keaton just seems to have in a lot of his roles, where he just seems like a good, all-round, nice American guy. Um, so, yeah, I did like that. Um, I do think the eight years time jump was ridiculous and a really bad piece of editing. I'm not sure who was responsible for that. I'm not sure if the plan was to have it be eight years ago and then something got dropped or or whatever, but yeah, that's bad. And it makes, it does affect the film as well, because if it was just the title card, I think you could ignore it. But because Vulture mentions it in dialogue and because of the the picture that Liz has drawn of the Avengers, it does negatively impact the film. Uh, the idea of the Department of Damage Control as well was a good idea. Um but I wish we got to see more of them. Um I think they're they're established as like a driving force of the first film in Homecoming, but then never mentioned again. Um you, or, you know, get they get brief mentions, and it'd be nice to see more of them, especially as they've apparently been a key part of the MCU since twenty twelve. Uh Mysterio is good. I like that with Mysterio they decided to play the character straight. Uh, what I mean by that is, I think Marvel knows now that people look up these movies and look up these characters whenever they make casting announcements. I think that's some reason why so many of the casting announcements kept secret for so long. Um, you know, because it starts the rumor mill going it gets people guessing, and people start to theorise about the plot, and, um, you know, and spoilers start to make their way out there based on comic book storylines, because if you're adapting a comic storyline, you have two options, you either, well, three options technically, because the third option is adapt it in name only, which they've kind of done with Age of Ultron, um, for example, but even then Age of Ultron did still have elements of certain comic book storylines within it. Um, But, you know, the main two options are try and subvert the comic book, you know, the expectations of people coming from the comic book. Um, A good example of that is um, in Captain Marvel, where it turns out the scrolls are actually the good guys, which is very, very different from the comic book and was wasn't kind of a nice subversion and I did quite like it or the other option is to play it straight um, which is what they did with mysterio Mysterio is a, a villain known for trickery and deception um, so when the early trailers introduced him as this multiversal hero it was one of those well either he's telling the truth and they're subverting it or no it's all going to be a deception and they 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 stick with it all being a deception. And a deception on so many levels. Like his whole backstory is false. It's not even that he's like they kept part of it. Like he's a multiversal criminal. It's like no it's all a lie. And I like that. Especially because I think some of Marvel's subversions now are becoming slightly predictable. Um, A good example again to go back to Hawkeye. Is um, one of the main twists in Hawkeye. Is who the main villain of the series is. Um, well, who one of the antagonists is. There's a, a main antagonist that they introduce later on, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, but you know, um, Kate is suspecting her stepfather of being of having like a more nefarious plans. And a lot of people quite rightly called out that, no, she should be worried about her mother. Um, And obviously the the comic book character that her stepfather is, is a more villainous character. So obviously a lot of people were speculating, no, no, it's got to be him because he's Swordsman uh, from the comics. And then it's like, no, it turns out it is actually her mother. Um, And I think a lot of the more dedicated Marvel fans had kind of predicted that because it is becoming a bit predictable. Um, I, I know several people have predicted other um, twists within their, their series. Agatha Harkness was another one in um, WandaVision um, that a lot of people predicted that she would actually be sort of responsible for everything. Um she didn't turn out to be responsible for everything necessarily, but she did turn out to have, um, you know, to be part of, uh, to be separate from everyone else and to be more of an antagonist. Um, A similar sort of thing happened with uh, Melina Vostokoff in Black Widow, um, Rachel Vice's character, where again, people were like predicting her as one of the more villainous characters Again, they didn't hit it quite right, but they did predict that, yeah, there was something about her not to be trusted. So I like that with Mysterio, they did play it straight and had it been like, no, he's Mysterio. He's the criminal. He's trying to, you know, um, you know, he's trying to play Spider-Man and he does it very, very well. Um, One of the big recurring tropes in these films as well is also the reveal of Peter's identity to various characters. Um, Peter's identity in the previous films is something that is kept more secret, although the villains do tend to find it out. Most of the reveals are done very, very well. Um, The reveal where Ned finds out is just... A nice, shocking, quick comedy moment um, where Vulture works it out is this tense, um, you know, very tense conversation where you see him puzzling it out and working it out. And it's very sinister. And then, of course, that takes uh, a very good turn where he sort of basically says to Peter that I know who you are, um, which was... Very well done, because obviously it's not unexpected for, you know, a, a dad with a, a daughter to say, hey, I just want to have a, a quick, quick word with your prom date before you go inside. And she's like, oh, OK, why would she think anything about that? Because, yeah, that's somewhat expected. You expect a dad to do that sort of thing. Um But then, of course, you know, the reveal that, you no know, he's got a gun and he knows that you're Spider-Man. Very well done. Um, the 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 reveal with May in Homecoming again a good laugh and a nice what the moment at the end of the film um elicited a very big laugh uh, when I watched it in the cinema for the first time. Um, I like how MJ had worked it out herself and was kind of puzzling it out. Um, because in the comics, Mary Jane does actually work out Peter's identity. Um, so I like that. MJ had actually worked it out and the end reveal in Far From Home where it's like Mysterio's last little jab um was very well done and I love that they brought back J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson fun fact they they tried to recast J. Jonah Jameson for Amazing Spider-Man 2 and couldn't do it because they couldn't find anyone who could beat jk simmons performance so i like that marvel just went we'll just bring the same guy back why not um and i think that's a a great great idea great twist i think that works very very well now before i go into discussing no way home in a more spoiler filled version i want to discuss spider-verse and briefly touch on the venom films Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I think, is absolutely incredible. Um, It's probably the best Spider-Man film, uh, and probably one of the best animated films I think I've ever seen, um, in that it uses the medium of animation to help enhance and tell its story. Um, A lot of films that are animated... Um, don't really do that, um, there are exceptions, but for example, I think, um, the Disney live action remakes that they've been doing show that they can try and tell the same stories in animation, not as successfully, I think the, um, because of the benefits of what animation allows you to do, um, something like the animated Lion King is always going to look better than the live-action one. Um, you know, for example, when it bursts into the song numbers and you get this all this African tribal art in the backgrounds and the bright, vibrant colours and things like that, which you just can't do in live-action, um, not without breaking more le- levels of disbelief than I think most audiences are comfortable with. <sighs> Spider-Verse, however, does try and tell... Um, a very focused very adult story it's probably the most to me it's one of the best animated movies because not only is it using the medium of animation to enhance its story um for example one of the major things it does uh, throughout the film is miles is only animated every other frame um so in standard anim- um in standard film um uh, you have 24 frames per second um to create the so you, you for each second of film, there's twenty four different animated frames. now miles is only animating on twelve of those, which l- leaves his movements in the film feeling a bit more jilted and sort of stuttery um and not as fluid as the rest of the characters, and that's even before he gets his spider powers and it's a nice subtle way of telling you that something's different about him and that he's also it also highlights his inexperience compared to the others uh, when he does actually become spider-man there's also things like the huge comic book um onomatopoeia that pops up um you know the big comic book sound effects uh, over certain scenes or when he's uh running on the walls or whipping the web line and you get those, those little word balloons that pop up um so it's using the animation like that. But it's also telling a very sensible story within the realms of animation. A lot of animation, um, and I, again, I touched on this before in a previous episode, um, where I was talking about um, grown-up animation especially, and how it feels like it has to be gratuitous um, regarding like violence, sex, swearing, things like that. Um, specifically things like Rick and Morty. Um and the idea that to be taken seriously, it has to be, has to very explicitly define itself as not for kids. Um, by using these more adult themes. Um, Spider-Verse isn't like that. It's, it's it, by its definition, a family film. The same way as most of the Disney films, Pixar films, etc. But, like a standard comic book, it never tries to talk down... Um, to its audience it doesn't make itself for kids it's definitely a film that kids can watch but it's not aimed at children in the same way that something like the lego movie might be the lego movie is again a very very good animated movie um that tells a story that adults and children can both relate to but it's very much aimed towards children spider-verse i don't think it is spider-verse is targeted towards fans of spider-man regardless of age and I think it's a very very good film for that and it treats the the medium of animation not as a as as animation should be treated in that animation is a filmmaking medium it's not a filmmaking genre um you know there are children's animated films there are adult animated films or cartoons or properties or you know tv shows And, you know, family animated ones. And Spider-Verse is is squarely in the middle. It's just a film that uses animation to tell its story rather than live-action filmmaking. And it's very, very good. It also uses a lot of the knowledge that you would have from pop culture about Spider-Man. But also subverts it. Um, So, for example, the first Spider-Man that we meet in the film, uh, played by Chris Pine... Is the Spider-Man of Miles' home universe. And we see elements like from we see elements from the Raimi films. We see them in Stopping the Train. We see the, the Bad Dancing from Spider-Man 3. So it's referencing those things that we already knew about Spider-Man in pop culture. Whether you'd seen those films or not, you'd you'd still likely have been exposed to those aspects of those films, either through trailers or memes or Anything else. But then the film upends that. By as soon as it's introduced. That Peter Parker. Switching the focus immediately to Miles. And Miles is introduced. Very very well. And very relatably. He's a kid. He's not quite sure what he wants to be. Um, There's all this pressure on him. From his his family. um, Especially his father. And he's just. He's trying to find... It's, it's a coming-of-age story. It's less of a superhero origin story as it is a coming-of-age story. Um, you know, throughout the film, Miles grows up and decides who he wants to be as well as becoming a superhero. There's a lot of very good allegory in the film. and um, Loads of people far smarter than me and far better at film criticism than me have spoken about this. Um... And it's very, very good. And to me, one of the most relatable things immediately is the fact that he's singing along to a song, which we hear him sing along to... and we hear him listen to several times in the film, which is Sunflowers. I'm not a particular fan of the song, but he can't remember all the words, which I find really touching because I know there's plenty of songs that I love, but I don't necessarily know all the words to, so sometimes I'm mumbling along or singing gibberish in the same way that Miles is. Um... You know the the, f- the film itself is it tells this very bold story um, that basically adapts the Spider Verse concept from the films, um, you know, uh, not sorry, not from the films, from the comic book uh, into this film, but anchors it very much on the characters within the film, especially Miles, um, but also Gwen Stacy. Um, who's played here by Haley Steinfeld. Um Peter B. Parker, which is Jake, Jake Johnson's version. Um uh Jefferson Davis, uh, P- uh, uh Miles's father, um Leif Schreiber's Kingpin, who's playing the villain, uh who's the main villain obviously, and Prowler, who is also turns out to be Miles's uncle Aaron, uh played by Mahersha Ali, who is fantastic. Um and it focuses not just on Miles, but and those other characters, but specifically their relations to Miles. You know, the mentor, the friend, the the father figure, the the uncle, the villain, and they all have a role to play in developing Miles's story. And it's very, very well done. There are some other nice touches as well, like the introduction of um, Live Octavius, um, played by Catherine Han. Um, She's worth mentioning in that her, her origin her debut in the film is very striking, but beyond that she just becomes sort of a henchman for the rest of the film. Which is a bit of a shame. Um you also have one of the best Stanley cameos ever. Um the film actually released after his death as well, so it also includes a, a very touching tribute in the end. And yeah the cameo is is beautiful and is one of many many things about this film that also makes that makes me cry um the film also isn't short which is not a complaint uh, a lot of animated films due to the more intensive workload that goes into an animation they tend to be shorter tend to be around the 90 to 100 minute mark um And that's not a bad thing. Most of them can usually uh, tell everything they need to tell in their story within that time frame. Animated films are very, very good at at quick storytelling. Um, You know, for example, Disney are very, very practiced at it. Um, Like, I was surprised when I walked out of Wreck-It Ralph the first time and realised just how short it actually was as a film because of how much actually happens in that film. Um... Just to give an example. Um, whereas Spider-Verse is a very long film. Spider-Verse, by contrast, is, I think, it's over two hours long. So it is a much longer than most animated films. It has a runtime much closer to its live-action counterparts. Um, but I don't think it wastes a minute of its screen time. It's still very, very efficient in its storytelling. Every single scene in it is... Telling us something about the characters, um, every every little interaction tells us something about the characters. Usually about Miles, but sometimes about the others and how they relate to to Miles. Excuse me. Um, it also has a tremendous soundtrack. It has great visuals, like the visuals are are very, very structured because this, you know, being filmed that's in animation, you can kind of structure the the physical sets in a way that you can't necessarily do with a live-action film. Um, I think the best example of this, as well as the best example of just how good the soundtrack is, is exemplified by probably the best scene in the movie, which if anyone has seen it, you know exactly which scene I'm going to talk about, which is the Leap of Faith scene. The Leap of Faith scene is where Miles embraces his role as Spider-Man and it is fantastic. Um it's tremendously shot. The the city kind of envelops him and pans round him in the way that the shot is structured. Um, you know, you have the the flipped angle so that he's not falling into the city. He's rising um out of what he was. And then of course this rising music from the song What's Up Danger which is a fantastic song. Um, And then of course the little callbacks in all the different shots, to shots that we'd seen previously with Miles. So like the rising on his web line uh, with a a whoop following him in onomatopoeic words, um, echoing where he fell earlier with the, the words coming the opposite direction. Or leaping across a gap between two buildings um, where previously he fell down. And and the music as well, especially the, the song What's Up Danger, rises to a crescendo when Miles becomes Spider-Man and starts parkouring through the city. Um, and even the way he parkours is very similar to uh, the way his uncle, the Prowler, moves through the city. Um, when the Prowler was chasing him previously. Um, and the counterpoint to that scene as well is also reflected in the music, in that the the sort of the dark disharmony that's on the Prowlers' theme song is sort of echoed by the more rising horns in the sort of the, the sort of horn blare that happens in the "What's Up Danger" song. Um, kind of hard to explain, but you will notice it, um, and it creates that that nice parallel as Miles has not only become Spider-Man, but he's also honouring everything that has influenced him, not just Spider-Man, but also his father and then also his uncle. And it's just fantastic. And I am really, really, really looking forward to the sequel. Um, You know, Spider-Verse was one I kind of, it kind of missed me. Uh, When it came out in the cinemas, I was aware of it, but I didn't go and see it. And I can't remember why I didn't go and see it. I really wish I had seen it on the big screen um, for the first time. Um, You know, it it seems to have been definitely much more successful after its release than when it actually launched. And I think a large part of that is that it won an Oscar. Um, It also, you know, we know we're getting the sequels. And just the positive word of mouth... Because this, this was critically loved and for very, very good reason. And so the fact that we know we're getting a sequel, not just one sequel, we're getting two, um, across the Spider-Verse part one and two. Um, and I, like a lot of other fans, are very, very much looking forward to them. I I, I would love to see Miles in live action one day, um, but not if that means losing the Miles that we have in these films To get it. I would rather see the Spider-Verse. Films develop. Maybe if they can move away from the Spider-Verse concept. um, I don't necessarily think. That the sequel needed to rely on that. But at the same time. The first film. Kept its focus so much on Miles. Despite the Spider-Verse. That I'm. I'm not worried. um, About Miles being lost. In this film. So, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens next with it. Um, the two Venom films I'm briefly going to talk about here. and Like I said, I'm not going to say much because I, w- I do want to talk about the Venom universe at a later date um, when I do my Marvel update later this year. Um, because obviously by that point we'll also have Morbius and we'll have an idea of what Sony is planning with these films it's making. I do think the first Venom especially is a very, very muddled film. The second one has similar things, like similar problems, but not quite to the same extent. The first film features, feels like there was a lot cut out of it. Um, But it ended up becoming this huge success that made over a billion dollars. And I think part of that was that China marketed it as a comedy. Like, I'm not joking. The Chinese market marketed Venom as a comedy film. Uh, You know, in the same way that they would market a romantic comedy. It was so bizarre. You can find the posters online. They are very, very strange. Um, I think the pacing... In both of the films is terrible. Um, To the point. It almost makes. Some of the worst pacing in. Spider-Man 3 or Amazing Spider-Man feel. Competent. And. I don't think these. These are bad films. Again like Spider-Man 3 and Amazing Spider-Man. I think there's. There's good films in there there's nuggets of really good ideas but they've just been handled so poorly I think it's definitely helped by Hardy's Tom Hardy's central performance as Venom because he is brilliant as both Eddie Brock and Venom and their interaction between each other is fantastic their scenes together are what sell these movies but The first one especially takes a long while to start, and then the conclusion just feels so rushed. And Act 2 just feels very, very bare-bones. Like, apparently there was 40 minutes cut from the first Venom movie, and it seems like most of it was cut out of Act 2. And then Let There Be Carnage feels very, very similar. There's a lot that seems to have been cut out, which makes some things just sort of happen... I also feel like the first film especially, and and the second one as well, also feel like they were supposed to be R-rated until like the last minute. And then someone at Sony said, no, 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 we can't can't make them R-rated. And making them R-rated would have made perfect sense because, um, you know, with what they were trying to do with the character and off the back of the success of... you know, Deadpool and Logan showing that there's a market for R-rated coin book movies. Um, you know, whether I necessarily think that those characters needed them or not, those were good films. I think maybe if they kept that rating, they might be better. But then the first film didn't do it, and then obviously made a billion dollars, which means the second film wasn't going to do it because they wanted it to be more successful than the first film. And so it seems like at the last minute, both of them have been cut to a lighter rating. And so they're not as violent, not as gratuitous. And with a character like Carnage, especially, that feels very awkward. Um, I do think there's, there's good films in there. And I think it just needs some bits cut away and some of the bits that have been cut away put back in instead um, they mainly just feel like they've been they've been made shorter I don't think either of them is over two hours and think they're barely over 100 minutes if indeed they're over that much already and I think the reason that's been done is to speed them up and to increase ticket sales especially Venom 2 um, let there be carnage with the fact that it was Sony was kind of sitting on it waiting for cinemas to open. And then it seems like, oh, we have to get it out before No Way Home. Um, And so, because we have to get it out before No Way Home, we want people to see it as often as possible to make as much money. So we want more showings. So we make the film a lot shorter so that we can have more showings a day and make more money. It's... mm. They feel more motivated by greed than anything else. And I think, again, it goes back to the whole... Avi Arad insisting that Venom be in Spider-Man 3... Because, you know, Venom's popular. Venom sells action figures. So we've got to include Venom. And I don't think that... Neither of the films feel like they they were made because a story had to be told. And I think that's the important thing about making anything... Any piece of art is that you should want to say something. And I don't think the Venom films wanted to say anything. But yes, this is your last chance to avoid spoilers for No Way Home, as I'm about to discuss No Way Home, and how it ties everything I've said together. So, Spider-Man No Way Home, the worst-kept secret ...in Hollywood turned out to be true. Namely that um, as well as bringing back the villains from the previous Spider-Man movies... ...we would also see the return of Andrew Garfield and Toby Maguire's Spider-Man... ...in a sort of live-action version of Spider-Verse. Now, that being said... I think the film balances itself very, very well. It's very long. I think it's one of the longest things in the MCU. It's like the, the second or third longest film. I can't remember if... I think it's definitely longer than Infinity War, but I don't think it's longer than Eternals. And again, it's it's very well done. It's It focuses very, very much on Peter Parker... Specifically, the Tom Holland Peter Parker, and dealing with the ramifications of Mysterio's announcement, starting immediately where Far From Home ended, before flashing forward a few months and showing us, you know, the main events of the film. Um, we see it gives a very, 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 very strong focus on Peter. And especially his relationships to Aunt May, MJ, and Ned, and the four of them, and and their connections to each other. Happy's also there, but not quite to the same extent. Um, you know, we start we see them get arrested by Damage Control, and then we see you know him get cleared of all charges by Daredevil. Um, Matt Murdock having a little cameo, which I thought was fantastic. And got a little cheer out of the audience that I watched it with both times. Um, especially the scene where he catches the brick um, that was thrown through the window. And Spider-Man's Peter, Peter's like, how did you do that? He said, I'm a very good lawyer. That um, was a, a brilliant line delivery. It was lovely to see Matt again. Charlie Cox reprising the role as Matt Murdock. Um, and yes, I'm going to be talking more about Daredevil. Uh, and what his return means for the future of the m c u in uh two episodes time so i'll I'll save that for then um, um regarding the the main thrust of the movie though is that with peter's identity outed um even though he's kind of cleared of any criminal charges, he still faces the the court of public opinion and so That leads to him, MJ, and Ned all being turned away from their prospective colleges, uh, specifically MIT. Now, that leads Peter to ask Stephen Strange for help. And I do like... A lot of people were were mentioning in the trailer um, that, you know, Strange seemed out of sorts and they were speculating, especially after What If, if it could be an alternate version of Strange. It turns out that's not the case. However, Strange is not the Sorcerer Supreme anymore. Uh, Wong is, which I find, again, a nice little touch, because Strange was blipped for five years, so Wong would be the, the natural person to take over as Sorcerer Supreme. So, I do think that was a nice inclusion. Now... Peter asked Strange for help. It was revealed recently... ...that obviously... ...the order of all these films... ...has slightly changed... um, ...due to COVID. Originally, uh, Doctor Strange... ...in the Multiverse of Madness... ...was due to release... ...before No Way Home. Um, However, because Sony... ...was a bit more strict about their dates... ...than Marvel was... ...they put No Way Home out... ...before... Multiverse of Madness, so that's one reason why Strange is seemingly out of character, is because he originally wasn't meant to be doing the role he does in this film, originally another character was, and there's concept art of it that's been released online, um, featuring a character from Multiverse of Madness, who I'm not going to mention, because despite the fact I'm talking about Way Home spoilers, that actually references something for a future movie, um... So if you want to find them yourself online, be my guest. But beware possible spoilers for Multiverse of Madness. So, strange does this spell to try and make everyone forget that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. But just like in the trailer, Peter keeps interrupting it with people that he wants to remember, which causes a break in reality. Um. Now, on one hand, I kind of like that Peter hasn't thought it through, clearly. He's He goes to the immediate sort of magic solution. But I do like that he's not trying to do it for himself. He's trying to do it for his friends. Which I thought was great. And I totally get that that's why Strange agrees to help him. However, the backfire is that... People who knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man from other universes... All of a sudden start appearing... To which Peter's like the multiverse is real because obviously the multiverse was teased for Peter um, with Mysterio and it's like yeah the multiverse is real well, the first one we see is Doctor Octopus um, again played by Alfred Molina he's brilliant uh, we then get um, Electro, Lizard, Sandman and eventually Norman Osborn and all of them are fantastic they're there are some definite changes um with some of them. Um Electra, especially, I think it's the most changes, being it sort of explained that the power in this world's different, so as he's absorbing it, it's changing him in different ways. Which means he loses the blue and looks more like Jamie Foxx now rather than nerdy Jamie Foxx like he did before. Um, Sandman and remains in his sand form. Throughout the film. That's not really explained. Um, obviously the behind the scenes reason. Is Thomas Hayden Church wasn't able to. Come and reprise the role in person. Despite doing the voice. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, but I don't mind. Because I it was glad to have Sandman back. I like as well that Sandman is not. Explicitly villainous. Like he offers to help Peter. And his main driving motivation. Is to go home. Um, he wants to go home and see his daughter. And he knows that Peter won't let them go back until Peter tries to help all of them so they don't die when they return. Um, you know, so I've seen some people online who seem to have misconstrued this and think the Sandman is a villain, and he's not, he's not a villain, he's not helping, you know, Norman or anything like that. He is, he's still a hero. Very much a hero, uh, well, not a hero, very much the misunderstood character that he was before, in that he just wants to go home and see his daughter, he doesn't care about the, the battles between Spider Man and Goblin. Speaking of which, um, Goblin's turn in this is expected, um, you know, I think everyone kind of knew that Goblin would go bad and ruin everything. The fight between him and Peter is brutal. Um, Fantastically so. It feels very reminiscent of the first Raimi film. Uh, Willem Dafoe is again doing as many of the stunts as he can. Or as many as they allowed him to do. Um, And it's clear he's just having a blast. Um, Just again chewing scenery in the the best ways. Um, And yeah, he's responsible for killing Aunt May. And Aunt May in this gives the great power, great responsibility speech before dying. And I thought that was done well. I thought her death was handled very, very well. And I like that it's left Peter kind of on his own. And then Ned, who has stolen Doctor Strange's, who has been given Doctor Strange's sling ring by Spider Man, because Spider Man was able to beat Doctor Strange using. Um, math in the mirror dimension Which I thought was brilliant It was very very funny um, And has taken his ring To kind of strand him there um, He's given it to Ned And Ned accidentally uses it And conjures a portal And through that portal comes Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker is, As Spider-Man And then they open another portal And from that portal comes Toby Maguire and then Tom McGuire and Andrew Garfield have a moment, like in Spider-Verse, where their spider senses go off. And then they both try and web each other and everything. It's brilliant, and it's lovely to see them. I like that they're included for most of the third act, um, and I think introducing them in the third act after May's death... Makes the best sense for the story of the mil- for the film, for the pacing of the film, so that you can keep the focus on Peter, but still include them for more than just a cameo. Um, there are some elements of the previous characters trying to adapt to the MCU style of humour. I do think Andrew Garfield does better at it than Tobey Maguire. Maybe because elements of his films were more improvisational anyway. And we also get some hint as to what happened to these two since we've seen them last, like Peter has implied, uh, sorry, I need to be more specific. Don't Maguire has implied that him and Mary Jane have kind of worked it out. They said it was hard, but they worked it out. Whereas Andrew Garfield, after losing Gwen, has become very despondent and morose and kind of he actually says he stopped pulling his punches. And it's like, that's dark. Spider-Man has gone on some dark turns in the comics um, over the years, especially during the Clone Saga and its aftermath. So I think the idea of a Peter that has, that has no one else to turn to, I think is quite sad. and It's a nice inclusion, and it makes me want to see more of that character because this film especially, I think he's one of the ones who does the best in it. Um I think th- the inclusions of these characters, while it's while it's a fantastic film for Peter, um, uh, you know, Tom Holland's Peter Parker and his cast, I think a lot of the other characters get redeemed or enhanced by their roles in this. Um, the exception is maybe the lizard, um, who doesn't really get much to do. Um and again is a voice only role from Risa Fans. Um, he's, he's suitably threatening, but it doesn't really do much else. Electro gets kind of re- redeemed from his, his more dorky persona. He's very threatening in the final battle. Um, at least until Doc Ock turns up to help disarm him. Um, Doc Ock getting a bit more time as a more heroic character. Like, he actually turns up and helps them stop Electro. And lashes out to help try and stop the Goblin. Um, that was a great touch, and obviously Doc Ock was fantastically done anyway, but is now better uh, as a result of this. Green Goblin is now just the best live action Spider Man villain that we've gotten by far, um, due to his role in this movie. He is terrifying at times in this film. He is he's definitely scary, and him killing Aunt May just kind of capitalises him into a, you know, definitely a much better version of this character, much more evil. He also smashes the mask, and you end up with Willem Dafoe's face uh, for the majority of it, which is fantastic. And he ends up with the tattered purple rags and everything. So he gets a more comic-accurate costume. And Peter's drive to kill him for what he did to May is so relatable and i'm but I'm also glad that Toby is the one to stop him uh you know even that leads to Toby getting stabbed um and yeah and- P- Peter's plan works; he manages to cure all these villains and send them home. However, the multiverse is breaking, and we see shots in the sky of all these characters starting to come through from different universes, including. Scorpion, Craven, the Hunter, the Rhino. There's loads more, but obviously I've only seen the film twice in cinemas. I've got no way of pausing it and actually analysing it, but there are loads of characters there. I think there's even a cameo from The Watcher at some point kind of watching in. And Peter realises the only way to stop it is to make everyone forget who Peter Parker is. Not that Spider-Man is Peter Parker, but who Peter Parker is. And that was brilliant. And it creates a very sad ending where everyone's forgotten him. Like he's at May's grave with Happy and Happy doesn't remember him. Or he speaks with Mary Jane and Ned and sees that they both got into MIT. And doesn't want to reveal the truth to them. And then he puts on a standard costume and goes out web swinging in New York. And yes... It, it's wrapped up a bit more easily than perhaps it could and maybe should have been, but I think everyone knew, most Spider-Man fans knew going into this that it the film was going to have to use some elements of a comic storyline which is very reviled, which is called One More Day. Um, in the comic book Civil War um, as part of the his ...stance supporting the uh, the pro-registration side, led by uh, Iron Man in the comic, um, Peter Parker publicly reveals his identity. However, then when Peter Parker switches sides later on in Civil War... Um, ...this puts his family at risk, specifically his wife Mary Jane and his Aunt May. Aunt May is then shot and starts dying and to save her life because somehow no one else in the in the marvel universe can help her even though she's dying of a simple bullet wound but i won't get started on that cuz that's a rant for a different day um he makes a deal with mephisto who is literally the demon the devil um and the villain that everyone was expecting was going to be in one division Um, Probably because they were also expecting him to possibly appear in this. Purely because of this storyline One More Day. And as part of One More Day, Mary Jane convinces Peter to accept a deal with Mephisto. Where Mephisto wipes out their marriage. So all the years of history associated with it and all the future potential... Of their marriage, like their children, etc. To wipe that away from reality to restore our maid's life. And it's a fucking dumb story, I bloody hate it. And you know, people you know, other other people have ranted far better and far more eloquently than I will about it. Um, specifically Linkara who is the best one for comic reviews, if you can find him on YouTube. His review of it is fantastic, although a bit shouty. And, yeah, One More Day is awful. But I think once Spider-Man's identity was revealed at the end of Far, Far From Home, most people expected some form of the One More Day storyline to incorporate itself into No Way Home. But, I think the way they've done it by having everyone forget who Peter Parker is is a much better version of the story than what the comic book did, and it also feels more tragic in some respects peter is he's he's you know he's still spider man, but he's lost. MJ, he's lost Ned. He's lost even the other Avengers knowing who he is. You know, Doctor Strange won't remember who Peter Parker is. Um, You know, nor will any of the others. And it is... It is sad. But... It's sadness that feels right. For the character... You know, this version of Spider-Man is one of the more selfless versions. I mean, all Spider-Men are are relatively selfless. Um, All the versions have been. Um, But this one especially, this, this, this selfless act of making the world forget who he is, seems... Like a big grand sacrifice in a way that the other spider never managed. I do kind of wish maybe we could have had a little epilogue um, featuring the uh, Andrew Garfield and Tom Maguire Spider-Men uh, back in their own universe and seeing how this had changed them um, in the same way that we did in Spider-Verse where we saw uh, Spider-Man Noir solve the Rubik's Cube and Um, you know, things like that, but it's not necessary because it does keep the focus on Peter and yeah, I think it's a good film and I think all of the other Spider-Man films become better because of No Way Home, not just the MCU ones, but the other ones as well. It is nice seeing where these characters ended up. It is nice seeing some of these actors get another chance with their characters. To to really endear them to us as an audience. Um, you know, Jamie Foxx's Electro, I have a a new love for. As a result of this movie. Uh, same with Andrew Garfield, Antoine Maguire's Spider-Man. And, and a much bigger appreciation for Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin than I think I ever did before. And I like that these characters weren't just born, bought back for fan service. There is plenty of fan service in this, don't get me wrong. This film probably has more fan service than The Last Act of Avengers Endgame. And that was pretty much all fan service. Um... You know, this has references to Tobey Maguire's back injury. It has, um, you know, little touches like Curing Doc Ock or, or, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. And just so many little references that are, are absolutely brilliant. And it even has the soundtrack references. Like Michael Giacchino's soundtrack incorporates elements from... Danny Hoffman's soundtrack from Hans Zimmer's soundtracks. So yeah, it's it's very, very well done. And I do like it. And I'm very interested to see what happens with Spider-Man next. Um, We are getting further appearances from Tom Holland's Spider-Man. I think he's expected in at least one more main Marvel film as part of the current deal and after the success of No Way Home I mean No Way Home has done pre-pandemic numbers in the cinema in terms of its box office it is phenomenally successful um, and I think part of that is because of again the word of mouth and people going back to seeing it more than once because like I said I've gone and seen it twice already and it's it's definitely worth it. I think it was actually better the second time. Even though I knew everything that was going to happen going into the first time. I still think I enjoyed it more the second time. Than I did the first. Because I just appreciated what was going on. And what it was doing a lot more. So yeah. I'm very interested to see where they take. Um, Tom Holland's Spider-Man now. Within the MCU. I'm hoping the forgetting Peter Parker isn't immediately undone, or at least has more wrinkles to it if it does get undone. Um I would not be adverse to seeing any of these characters again, even the villains, uh, or either of the Spider Men. It'd be nice to get maybe that Spider Man 4 or Amazing Spider Man 3 that we never got, but it's not necessary. But I do think this film has breathe new life, not just into the MCU Spider-Man, but also the potential for the Spider-Man films going forward. Oh, and also, I forgot to even mention: Venom appears in the post-credit sequence, has a brilliant little interaction um, between the suit and Eddie, and uh, a barman who is a character, is an actor from Ted Lasso believe, on Apple TV. I've not seen it, but I've heard he's from that. So he's not just a bit part actor. They seem to have cast someone important, and I wonder why, uh, considering he, I don't think he has... I think he has, like, two lines. um. And then Venom disappears back to his own universe, but leaves part of his symbiote suit behind. Now, Venom has had a lot of very, very good comic stories recently. Things like the King Black and um, Venom Verse and stuff like that. So, I'm wondering if future Venom films might incorporate elements of those plots, and if the MCU might do, for example, Null. Um, so, yeah, I'd be interested to see what happens there. But yes, Spider-Man: No Way Home and the Spider-Man. For- universe that's my thoughts on them and yeah i'm just excited to see what happens next and i'm very much looking forward to uh freshman year to hopefully fill in the gaps of uh tom holland's peter parker and maybe give us uncle ben that we haven't seen until now because so i'm interested to see what they'd be allowed to do in that series regarding the current licensing deal between sony and marvel Hello, friends. Just quickly before I sign off uh, for this episode, I thought I'd give you a sneak peek at what's coming up um, for the first part of the year. Uh, the next episode is going to be out in two weeks' time on January 29th, as going to be looking at Final Space, the TV show by Oland Rogers, which I have spoken about briefly in my episode on uh, Grown Up Gratuity. Um, February 12th, uh, two weeks after that, I'm going to be looking at Daredevil and the the more darker side of the MCU. So looking at all of the Netflix MCU shows, especially with the main focus on Daredevil. But I will touch on Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist and Punisher as well. February 26th, two weeks after that, I'm going to be looking at War of the Worlds, uh, the sci-fi classic by H.G. Wells the radio drama by uh, Orson Welles, no relation and the Jeff Wayne musical as well as some of the film adaptations that it's had over the years Um, I've never read War of the Worlds before so I'm actually really looking forward to that one um, to go into it and discuss it properly Uh, it's definitely an influential one on science fiction as a genre um, so hopefully by looking at it as a classic, we can kind of appraise it with a modern eye March 12th, shortly after the launch of the new Batman film in cinemas, I'm going to be tackling that most popular geek question who is the best Batman and I'm going to give you uh, my breakdowns of all the different Batman uh, that we've had in cinema, from Adam West all the way through to Robert Pattinson and give you my view on all of them and how I would rank them all and then finally, before I take a break uh, in April, uh, on March 26th, I'm gonna be doing an episode on the television classic Thunderbirds by Jerry Anderson. Um Thunderbirds is a show I, I loved as a kid. Um so with it being my birthday in April, the last episode before my birthday, I decided to focus on something I really enjoy. Um I think it's a very very good series Um, very underrated in modern times but probably more influential than you think Um, and I think it's a fascinating piece of work to look at so yeah I'm going to look at Thunderbirds and then April 9th which would be when our next episode would release I am actually taking that week off, Uh, my birthday is on April the 5th so I would I'm taking that time off there are going to be more episodes throughout the year. That is not just all of Season 3. Uh, season 3 is going to be run throughout uh, 2022. And it's going to be 22 episodes long by the time I'm done. Uh, by the time the last episode drops on December 3rd. I have topics planned for most of the year so far. Um, I think I'm missing 3 or 4 episodes that I don't have a, a solid plan for just yet. Um... Most of them are featured around either new releases or anniversaries or other things like that that I think might be worth exploring, um, but to give you a hint, we're going to be looking at Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Star Wars under Disney, The Boys, um, and like I said, a big update on the MCU in the summer, uh, looking at the Arrowverse and how that built its own universe. And then finally, by the end of the year, we're going to be talking about the DCEU and how the Flash film might affect that, if current rumours are true. Um, So it's going to be a very good year, and I would love it if you would join me all for it. Thank you very much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Look after yourselves. Take your vaccines. Wear your masks. Just take care of your physical and mental health because it's very, very important with how things are at the minute that you take the time to look after yourself and do whatever you need to to look after yourself. Take care of yourselves, my friends, and until next time. Thank you very much for listening to Gardo Goes Geek. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to recommend it to your friends. If you would like to get in touch with me to discuss a topic or an idea for a future episode, or to give feedback on the episode you just listened to or any of our others, then you can reach me at any of my social medias. I am at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. All of my social media links, as well as links for everywhere this podcast can be found, are contained on linktree/slash Gardo. Thank you for listening, and until next time.